Yes, good morning. Uh, yeah. Welcome to Manhattan Prez if you're new out there. Uh, today we are going to step into Jonah 4, so we will be pausing on our series in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to hear all, from all 11 verses of Jonah chapter 4 today. So on January 6, 2019, I preached the first chapter. Uh, then in April, I preached the second. Last December, I preached the third. And today, we'll, we'll finally wrap up this little book. But you can tell all your friends who love studying the Bible that it took us a year and a half to get through it. And just omit that it was intermittent, okay? And they can just believe what they want to believe there. But in lieu of that, a, a recap of this book is... And it's due. Uh, if you're new to Christianity, you may not even be familiar with this story. And so Jonah is a, it's a small book. It's in the Old Testament. And it chronicles the story of a prophet who's running from the presence of God. And he's harboring ethnocentrism in his heart. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He prefers his people over them. And the great irony is God calls him to love these enemies that he hates. And so Jonah does what any sinful person does, right? He, he flees and he runs the other way. He goes to Tarshish and heads down to the docks. He buys a ticket and then he heads down into a boat. Eventually the Lord chases him, throws a storm in, on the sea that his boat is on. And Jonah ends up going down into the sea and eventually down into the belly of a fish. Right, the, the story just shows Jonah just descending until he finally hits rock bottom. And after three days in the belly of this fish, he finally prays. And he calls out to God. And it's at that point that the Lord appoints this fish to spit Jonah back up on dry land. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again at the beginning of chapter 3. And he says, now go, preach to these Ninevites. And Jonah goes and he preaches this message of repentance and a mass revival comes to Nineveh. From the king to the peasant, they repent and they believe. And the great irony is that this story happens against the backdrop of a time in Israel's history where they're rebellious. They're running from God. If you were to go look at 2 Kings 14, you'd see it. And the king that Jonah was under, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so what we have here is a prophet who's been commissioned to extend the message of grace, not wanting to, and eventually his enemies responding to that grace with repentance and joy. That is where we've been in the book of Jonah so far. And so let's pick it up here in Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to read the first four verses uh, really quickly before again, I, I want to say one other thing is I titled this sermon poorly. Um, Brian texted me a few weeks ago, hey, what's the title? And I flipped open my Bible and I read through it briefly and I said, oh man, this guy's a failed missionary. I will just call it the failed missionary. And then I got this Monday morning, I started sitting in the text and I was like, that's a terrible title. Why did I do that? And so if I could retitle it this morning... I, I would title it something along the lines of anger and the path to Jesus. So Jonah chapter 4, let's read the, the first four verses together. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's open in prayer. Uh, Triune God, uh, creator of the cosmos, we come before you this Sunday morning asking for you to minister to us through your word, specifically in and through this chapter of Jonah. We praise you for your presence and for you making a way for us to experience your presence with joy. Please make us a people who will respond to your word in the ways that are in step with the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, please open the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the riches of your word. Amen. So the the Cassing family has been fairly conservative with our social distancing. Uh, Baby Eleanor is due in a little over four weeks, and we don't have the best track record with pregnancies. And so we're busy with our summer responsibilities and preparing the house before our routine is wrecked by the joys and chaos that a newborn brings. And in this season of children being bottled up at home, something that has become evident is how the Lord can use our relationships with our children to further our sanctification. Specifically, my sanctification, and specifically, my struggles with anger. Right? These beautiful little image bearers who burst into my office at all the wrong times, wanting to show me their dress and how they can spin and twirl. These little people, these beautiful neighbors that God has blessed me with. He just has a way of using them to show me how sinful I am, specifically highlighting my struggle with anger. And so just to be clear, I'm not saying that my children cause me to be angry. They don't. They, they merely participate in the situation that reveals the anger that's already in my heart. And if you're a parent or you work with small children, you can probably understand to some degree. Right? There's only so many times that you can hear your name, dad, 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 before you might lose your mind when you're trying to work from home. But nonetheless, that does not justify my anger. And if you can resonate with that on any level, you should resonate with Jonah in the first four verses of this chapter. Right, here's Jonah, the, the missionary who's just been blessed with a mass revival. This tremendous blessing. I, I know many missionaries who'd give their left arm to see this type of revival come to the city that they're ministering in. And yet, 
he's angry. Right? We get to listen in to his prayer and the conversation that God has with him. And the Lord's opening rebuttal to Jonah, do you do well to be angry, is a question that we need to wrestle with as God's people today. I mean, it's an arresting question for our current societal moment. Right? We live in the age of outrage. Right? Because of the internet, it doesn't matter where you live in the United States, it can find you. Right? Whether on a quiet farm operation tucked in the Flint Hills or in a bustling city like Wichita, more than likely you know people who are angry right? or you might even be angry yourself. And just as importantly, most of us carry outrage in our back pockets. It's called a cell phone. And it taps us right into the bubbling current of anger that sits below the surface of our society in an endless stream of polarization and resentment of whoever the algorithms decide the other is. Right? We just carry it with us all the time. And so as we hear this passage today, we have to reckon with the powerful emotion of anger. What do we do with our anger? How should we process our anger? Why are we angry? And we have to learn from Jonah because we are all Jonahs in a society full of Jonahs doing Jonah-like things. So the first thing we see here in these opening verses is how our anger is viewed by our God and King. And just so you know where we're going, we're going to look at how our anger is viewed by our God and King, then we're going to look at the context for our anger, and then eventually we're going to get to the crux of our anger. But the first thing we see here is the King and anger. Right? The, the King's character is the starting point for us evaluating our anger. Right? Look at Jonah's opening prayer again in verses 1 and 2. Look down in your Bibles. Right? Jonah is exceedingly displeased and he's angry. Verse 1. And then key in here on Jonah's prayer in verse 2. Where he says, O Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from, Jonah, from disaster. Right, Jonah's anger is kindled by the collision of his hatred for the Ninevites and God's gracious character. Right, he, he's blinded by his anger. He despises that the Lord was going to be gracious and merciful and slow to anger and he's going to be abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster against his enemies. He wanted justice in his own time, in his own way, and at his own discretion. So you can't miss this. Jonah, he's right about God's character. Intellectually, Jonah gets it. Right? He's, he's a contemporary of Hosea. And if you were to go read Hosea chapter 3, 11, or 14, what you would see is Jonah or Hosea preaching this very character of God to the Israelite people. Jonah gets God's character right. 
And it's actually what frustrates him. Right? And, and the sad thing, as Jin say, Z would say, is Jonah is big mad. Right? Like, he is really, really angry. He's so mad, he wants to die. Right? That's verse 3. He appeals to some form of divine euthanasia. He wants the Lord to take him out. To see his enemies blessed is too much for Jonah. It literally undoes him. And it's at this point in the story that we get that glaring juxtaposition between God's gracious character and Jonah's merciless character. Right? And that's why God asked that indicting question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? And the text is silent when it comes to Jonah's response. And I think that silence prompts us to step in and say, do we do well to be angry? You see, when we boil it all down, there are two reasons that we can be angry in this world. One, we can be mad because God's kingdom is under assault. And that is righteous anger. Right? Being angry about the murder of George Floyd, righteous anger. Being angry about rioting and looting, that's righteous anger. Being angry about things like abortion or systemic racism or white nationalism or the confusion around gender being taught in our public schools, righteous anger. But there's a second reason that we can be angry in this world. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's the second reason that we are often so angry. And that's we can be mad because our own kingdom is under assault, right? Because our comfort has been taken away, because our preferences have been snubbed, or our autonomy is being infringed upon. And that's really what we see here in these first four verses of Jonah, right? And that's why we have to wrestle with the question, am I mad because God's kingdom's under assault? Or am I mad because my own kingdom is under assault? And it's really important that we discern the difference between those two things because if we don't, we'll start to do things in the name of Jesus that aren't of Jesus. And it's really, really easy to deceive yourself when you're angry. It is so easy to justify our unrighteous anger. There's always a reason. And so this is kind of like our Anakin Skywalker moment, right? If, if you're familiar with the Star Wars saga, that third movie, there's this scene between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin, and they're fighting, and Obi-Wan's like, don't do it, bro. I'm paraphrasing here. And he's like, I got the high ground. This is going to end poorly for you. Right? But Anakin's blinded by his rage. And in the name of love, he does something really foolish. And it costs him dearly. For too many of us, we act like Anakin. We, we live like 
Jonah. So why are you angry? That's the first application question today. And, and I actually want to challenge you to write down, after you go home today, I want you to make a list and just write down everything that made you angry this past week. And ask yourself, did I do well to be angry? Take a look at your heart. Are you mad at that person on social media because of God's word or God's characters being maligned? Or are you mad because your preference is being maligned? Are you angry at that roommate or your spouse because their lives are out of step with the kingdom? Or are you angry because they're out of step with your kingdom? Take a hard look here and ask yourself, do you do well to be angry? So let's keep reading in Jonah. Let's see where Jonah goes, right? And you're going to see he trades in his shovel for a backhoe because he hasn't dug in himself a big enough hole yet, right? And he just keeps on going here. So pick it up in verse 5. And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he sh should see what would become of the city, right? So here's Jonah, right? He, he's still so salty that he's holding out hope that God will destroy Nineveh, right? And so as I read verse 6, I just want you to take note of a couple things. One, notice where Jonah goes from exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad. And notice who does all the appointing from verse 6 to 9, all right? So now, picking up this is verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. We'll stop right there. So from angry to glad, back to mad, right? Jonah's living on this pendulum swing of emotions. And why? It's because he's living by his circumstances and his happiness is tied to them. Jonah depends on this context instead of his king for his gladness. He prefers his amenities to the presence of the Almighty. Right? The, the fickleness here of Jonah's heart is on full display. If it wasn't clear in the first four verses of the chapter that Jonah didn't get grace at the heart level, it should be undeniable at this point. Right? Jonah loves the benefits of grace but could care less about the gracious God that bestows those benefits. Right? And notice who's sovereign over all of Jonah's circumstances here. Notice who is the sovereign that creates the context that reveals the anger in Jonah's heart. It's God. God's the one who sovereignly wove these circumstances together. Right? Verse 6, God appoints the plant to grow. 
Verse 7, God appoints the worm to kill the plant. Verse 8, God appoints the scorching east wind. Right, this is one of those themes that runs through the entire book of Jonah, the sovereignty of God. Right? If we were to turn back in Jonah, right, we'd see that in chapter 1, verse 1, right, God's the one who, who does the initial call. He, the word of the Lord comes to him. And then when Jonah flees to Tarshish, right, God's the one who throws the storm on the ship in verse 4 of chapter 1. Right? Then, then God's the one who calls out Jonah's lot. And then when Jonah's thrown into the ocean, right, God's the one who appoints the fish to swallow him. And then eventually, after Jonah prays, right, God's the one who appoints the fish to spit him back up on dry land, right? God is in control of everything here. There's literally not a single atom in this entire story of Jonah that God isn't sovereign over or controlling. Right, it's why Jonah can say so eloquently in chapter 2, verse 9, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what we have to see here is that God did not make Jonah angry, right? Jonah was already an angry person. God merely furnished the context for Jonah to display his anger. Right, imagine two oil tankers on the Pacific Ocean, and they're sailing in the midst of fog, and then they crash into one another. Right? If I were to ask you, why did these oil tankers spill oil into the ocean? Right? Our, our knee-jerk response would be, well, it was foggy. Perhaps we say the captain was incompetent. Maybe the, they had technical errors with their equipment. Right? But if I were to just change the intonation in my question and ask, why did oil get spilled into the ocean when these oil tankers crashed? Right, you'd be forced to say, well, because there was oil in the halls of those ships. Right, when those oil tankers crashed, water didn't pour into the ocean. Oil did because oil was already there. The crash didn't put oil in the halls of those ships. The crash merely revealed what was already there. In the same way here, Jonah was already an angry person. He was harboring the bitterness and the hatred towards the Ninevites in his heart. It was already there. And the Lord was trying to free him from it. And he was sovereignly weaving this context together to rid him of his unrighteous anger. And we see Jonah, he still doesn't get it, right? Once again, he appeals for death. Because he fundamentally doesn't understand who God is. And the crazy thing here is, is that God is still pursuing him. I mean, he's been pursuing Jonah since verse 1 of this book. And you would think after he's been swallowed by a fish, after he's seen an entire city repent and believe, that he would begin to trust God. But he doesn't. And, and you would think, when's God going to give up on this guy? But God doesn't. Right, look, at, look at verse 6. You see God's hand here? After Jonah just silently ignores him right, and walks out to the city, builds his own little shelter, 
the, the Lord comes along and he gives them a plant. He gives them a better shelter. Why did, why did the Lord do that? What's verse 6 say? That it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. We see the, the, the love of God here. God loves Jonah. And God is initiating with Jonah even when he is rebelling against him, even while he's yet a sinner. God doesn't wait for Jonah to get his junk together before he goes and gets him. Nope, he starts pursuing him again. And God's using these circumstances to bring Jonah back to himself. And so as we apply this to ourselves, right, let's, let's go back to that list that I challenged you to make. Right, the first time I asked you to look at it, I wanted you to examine the list in light of whose kingdom prompted it. This time, I want you to examine the context that surrounded it. And I want to challenge you to acknowledge the sovereignty of God in those circumstances. God was not caught off guard by the circumstances that revealed the anger in your heart. Our God is not only a good God, he is a sovereign God. Which is ultimately why in God's final response to Jonah in the remaining two verses, we see the word of the Lord come to Jonah a final time. And it takes Jonah to the crux of his anger, and it lays him bare. So pick it up here in verse 10 with me. And we're going to look at, we're going to move from the, the context of anger to the crux of anger. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Right? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah for a final time in this short book, and God silences Jonah with another gut-wrenching question. Should he not pity Nineveh? Should he not show grace to these people? It's, it's a rhetorical question. The obvious truth here is that he's going to because he's God. And, and Jonah has no business deciding who should be the recipient of God's grace. Right? God's going full Romans 9 on Jonah here. That's what's happening. He's saying, who are you, O man, to answer back to me? Who are you, vessel of clay, to, to, to challenge who I make into a vessel for righteous use. That's not your job. You're not God, Jonah. You don't get to decide who's the recipient of God's grace. Right? It's a powerful contrast. Here's Jonah crying about a plant that he did not labor, nor did he make it grow, the verse says. So he's literally done nothing. He brings no work to the table here. It's all grace. And he's crying about it. A plant that came and passed in a 24-hour period. And then you have Nineveh, this massive city with surrounding livestock. A, a city the size of Topeka, with all its surrounding farms and cattle. 
and Jonah is busted up about the plant and not the people. He's busted up about the circumstances and not the souls of his neighbor. Jonah does not understand God's value system. He doesn't understand what God loves. He knows intellectually that God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he wants to put an asterisk on it. He wants to add the footnote. He, he, he wants to say, but, but not towards the Ninevites. But the Lord won't let him. That's not how God has chosen to reveal himself. He, he can't get that head knowledge to move to his heart. Because his hatred of the other stops him. Right? Imagine a scenario where you had two paintings. Right? One was painted down the street here on points. Right at the United Methodist Preschool. Okay? It's a finger painting done by a four-year-old. And the other is the Mona Lisa, painted by Leonardo da Vinci, insured at something like $100 million when it was first insured. Now imagine a world-renowned art critic who would be more angry at the destruction of the finger painting done at the United Methodist Preschool than he would if the Mona Lisa was defaced. That's Jonah. He's busted up over this finger painting of a plant, but he doesn't give a rip about the 120,000 finger paintings of God that are living and breathing in Nineveh. And that's us when we don't love our neighbors. When we miss the heart of God, we are the art critics who've lost their minds. When we love our earthly comforts more than the souls of our neighbors, we are that art critic. We are the, the self-righteous modern-day Pharisee that can't grasp the grace of God. Right, this is why Jesus takes the sign of Jonah and applies it to himself. Right, Brian just preached on this in Luke 11, 29-32. And he calls out this generation. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And he goes on to say, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus. Right, the, the Pharisees in, in Jesus' time, they can't wrap their heads around the truth that Jesus is God. That he is the, the gracious and merciful God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disasters. Just like Jonah in his time couldn't understand that that was the same God. But Jesus comes not for the righteous but for the sick. He comes for the Ninevite. 
And so what we have to wrestle with is that the, the crux of our unrighteous anger is ultimately a misunderstanding of the cross of Jesus. When we're wrestling with that unrighteous anger, we don't realize how much we've been forgiven. How needy we are of that grace. You see, God's grace is the ultimate leveler. And at the end of the day, there is no difference between Jonah and the Ninevite when it comes to their need for God's grace. They both need it. So as I begin to wrap up this passage and this book, I'm going to give you three brief more applications here that the whole book of Jonah, I think, pushes upon us and that we have to obey these things if we're to be faithful to image the gracious and merciful God of the Bible. The first is that we have to be willing to repudiate any form of ethnocentrism or tribalism. We can't be like Jonah. We cannot harbor animosity towards whoever the other is. The Bible is clear. We are to love our enemies. When we see things like the alt-right movement in our culture, we must condemn it. When we see partiality and favoritism in our own heart, we must repent of it. We can't let our love for our own people let us despise and hate whoever the other is in your life. And not only that, we can't be like Jonah in that, but we, we must have a higher regard. We have to be the opposite of Jonah. We must embrace our responsibility to preach the gospel to all peoples, even our enemies. Right? There, there is no asterisk on the second greatest commandment. There is no asterisk on the great commission that we talked about in our affirmation of faith. It's, it's all. It's all peoples, all nations, everywhere. There are no qualifications. There is no fine print there. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And the greatest act of love is helping someone know Jesus. It is helping them see the gospel as the good news that it is. It is to preach the gospel to your neighbor. Whether the Ninevite in your life is a Republican or a Democrat. Whether they're the 20-something Democratic Socialist over at K-State or the 50-something conservative. Whether they're black or white. Whether they're rioting or not. Whether they are born in an urban context or a rural context. Whether educated or uneducated. Whether gay or straight. They need the gospel. We all need the gospel. And our call that we have to embrace is to preach the gospel. We are to love our neighbors. Full stop. We should be passionate about this, brothers and sisters. God is passionate about his glory, and we should be passionate about it too. God did not shy away from saving 
terrible people like the Ninevites, and we should not shy away from going and proclaiming to people like the Ninevites today. And lastly, we must embrace the grace of God for ourselves. And really, this is the foundation for the first two, is we need the gospel. Right? One of the most striking things about the book of Jonah is how it ends. It just stops. You're left with a cliffhanger. You're like, what happens next? Does Jonah come into the city? Like, does he change? What happens to Jonah? Right? How will Jonah respond to this final word from the Lord? Like, will he be like the proverbial older brother that Brian preached about in Luke 15? Stay outside the city, harboring his self-righteousness and anger? Or will he come into the party and celebrate with the younger brother Ninevite who was saved? That's where Jonah ends. And my plea to you would be, come to the grace of God. Don't be the older brother. Don't be like Jonah. Receive the grace that comes to you in the gospel. As we've walked through this sermon, I've actually challenged you a couple times to make that list and to think through it, right? And I've challenged you to look at it in light of the king, look at it in light of the context, and now I want you to look at it in light of the cross. Let that be the final way you look at that list. Is that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards you. He loves you. And it's all because of the greater Jonah. It's all because of what Jesus did thousands of years later on a cross. Where it doesn't matter that you've harbored anger because Jesus took the anger and wrath of God in your place. And now you can have an alien righteousness. You can have a righteousness that isn't your own a righteousness that comes from Jesus because he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died so that we could be welcomed home. If I were to put this sermon in a sentence, it would be in the form of a question and it would be something like this. Do you do well to be angry at Jesus? Do you do well to be angry at Jesus? And depending on how you answer that question, you should know if you do well to be angry at your neighbor. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who seek our justice at the cross. Let's be a church that is known not for venting our anger on social media, but let's be a church that's known for proclaiming the gospel to our neighbors. The gospel that Jesus took the anger that we deserved so that we could be sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father, 
Would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make us a congregation that proclaims the glory of your Son, Jesus? Would you please make us a congregation that is submitted to your word, that delights in the purpose and power of your word as we proclaim the excellencies of that word? We do ask that you would raise up many more men and women that you would save our lost neighbors here in Kansas, in Riley County, Lord. The people that live to our left and our right. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.